Hello? Hello? Is anybody there? Hopefully so, because we're now starting episode 29 of Fully Scored. As ever, we have an exciting episode laid out for you today. Coinonia. No, it's not a cash-related disaster. It's actually the name of the piece that we're featuring in today's episode. Major Martin Cordner joins us to talk about the story behind his brand new major work for Brass Band, as recorded on Powerhouse, the latest, at time of recording, album released by the International Staff Band. Now, talking about the International Staff Band in a classy segue, our guest today was a member of the ISB for over 40 years as principal euphonium. A man that really needs no introduction as his legacy is known all around the Salvation Army world and the wider brass band movement. So, without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to Fully Scored, Derek Kane. Well, thank you Derek for joining us today. And uh, we're coming from the brand new hall here in Bexley Heath, the new Salvation Army Hall um, in South London. How does it feel to be back in a building like this? Well, um, firstly, it's very exciting. Uh, after 14 years away, uh, just a few yards up the Broadway, not far, but um, here we are, a new uh, building with a new paintwork, new chairs, and uh, everything's looking good. Absolutely, it really is. Now, even though we are coming from London today, you haven't always been a Londoner, and listeners may have picked that up from your accent already. Yeah, sure. And, yeah, some people still pick it up, but... I guess uh, 40 plus years in South London changes your accent a little bit. Um, but yeah, originally from Hamilton uh, in Scotland, uh, where I grew up uh, with my family there and through the Salvation Army. So that was your first connections with the Salvation Army then in Hamilton? Yes, it was. Um, my dad played in the band. He was a trombone player. And uh, I joined the YP band, as you do, and came up through into the senior band there. Uh, in the core of Hamilton, which um, had a very strong musical tradition, uh, along with a lot of Glasgow core at that time. Uh, music was strong, particularly, I guess, in the, the banding area. Excellent. And where were those first musical seeds sown? Was it when you joined the YP band, or was it even before that? Well, I guess I was used to hearing music at home, uh, hearing band music, Salvation Army music, uh, other bands play, um, but I guess it really took hold, yes, when I joined the YP band, starting on a tenor horn was my very first instrument. Uh, they also thought I was big enough not to carry a cornet <laughs> at the age of uh, six or seven, um, and I was given a tenor horn. Um, but by the age of nine, I was playing the euphonium. The band leader one Friday or Sunday said, oh, I want you to take this, you're now playing euphonium in the YP band. I said, oh, okay. And uh, the rest is, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I believe that you played your first euphonium solo in 1966 at a Scottish Congress at the age of only 10. Is that correct? Yeah, it seems funny when you mention dates now. We associate that with the World Cup final. Um, <laughs> but um, nevertheless, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was 10 years old. And uh, the Scottish Congress... Uh, was a big event, uh, probably spanning over th maybe four days, maybe uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, uh, ending on the Monday night, which was traditionally a youth night. 
and I was invited uh, to play a solo, uh, along with my co-band. They were invited to be the duty band. And so I chose the solo, The Priceless Gift. Probably my dad chose it because it's a trombone solo, so he probably said, yeah, you're playing this one. Um, so off I went to the big hall in Glasgow and uh, played my first solo in public with my red army jersey and my short trousers and stripy socks. <laughs> um, and that was the start of my solo career, I guess. And I was allowed to play a senior band euphonium. I didn't have to play mine. I, I could borrow one from Senior Band to play on the big solo night. The priceless gift. Nice. And did you know from that moment that that you wanted to be a euphonium soloist and pursue music as a career? I certainly knew at that point how much I enjoyed playing. Hmm. Um, I mean, I had the practice bug from very early. Uh, I can never remember being told to go and practice. So I think it was, it was part of my musical DNA to pick up the instrument every day and, and do some work and, and just enjoy playing it, uh, even from an early age. Fantastic. And where did life lead you then playing-wise from there? Where were the next steps that you took to become the player you are now? Well, uh, coming through the senior band and doing all that kind of stuff. And of course, through these years, I had access to all the music they were playing. Uh, because back then we had a Saturday night meeting, Saturday night, uh, Sunday afternoon meeting every single week, where the band would play what we called big pieces uh, every single weekend. And I would sit behind the trombone section by my dad and have a look over at the music. And so I, in my, you know, I learned all these pieces from a very early age. Um, Solo-wise, yeah, I had some solo engagements. I guess throughout my teenage years, notably uh, a visit to the Star Lake Music Camp when I was 16 years old. So I'm afraid to say 50 years this year, which sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, I made my first visit to the Star Lake Music Camp uh, on the Eric Lyson Scholarship. I was chosen from the then uh, Scotland Territory. Um, to, to represent the territory as the Lysden Scholarship winner and went to Star Lake um, and played in the Star Lake band there uh, under Derek Smith and the guest uh, Ray Stedman Allen uh, that week. So, um, so early on I had you know, experiences with you know, some well-known and some big army names as it were. And uh, in a Star Lake music camp I was put on the A band and I was up playing Song for Brother and The Conqueror for my two solos that week in the Starlight Band. Sitting opposite uh, Philip Smith on Principal Cornet and Stephen Buller behind me on trombone. So that was uh, quite a band. Fantastic. That does sound very exciting indeed. Who were some of your inspirations at that age playing-wise? Uh, I guess playing-wise, I looked at euphonium players I listened to all sorts of bands. I listened to the Staff Band, I listened to the Black Tide Band, which was, a, I guess, bands that I grew up with. But, and the euphonium players of that day, as they are now, were, were key figures. Um, John Clough in Black Dyke, Trevor Groom uh, in GUS, and Lyndon Bagley on euphonium as well, uh, who played the first um, sovereign euphonium. He was the first man to play that instrument. So he was very 
influential in the development of the euphonium. But these three players always say, uh, if you put these three players to it, together, you have absolutely everything. You have the best sounds, you have the best techniques, you have the best solo playing, you have the best band playing, etc., etc. And for me, they just encapsulated everything that I wanted to try and be as a player. Fantastic. So in 1976, another date, uh, you moved down from Hamilton to join the International Staff Band. What was that change like in your life? A big move. Uh, it was a massive change, and, and looking back, there's probably not many changes like it. But I was just about 20 years old, and um, the opportunity to came up for the audition with his staff band. And of course, I'd never been to London for anything. Um, I'd been out of Scotland, but not for to play or with the, with the Salvation Army. Um, so it's a big deal. And these days, if you were moving to London, I, I guess you would make every arrangement possible, you would make it as comfortable as... But back then, I was put on the overnight bus from Hamilton bus station. Mum and Dad there waved me off like Dick Whittington and his euphonium cat. Um, <laughs> and I was put on the overnight bus, arriving in Waterloo Station, bus station, at, I don't know, 5.30 or something in the morning, and uh, picked up by... Major George Whittingham, who was deputy bandmaster of the staff band at that time. And I, I didn't even know where it was, which part of London, I hadn't a clue. And that was it, that was the, the move was done. Um, one of the toughest things about it, of course, was leaving, leaving family mm. and friends. And even tougher was telling the bandmaster that I was leaving to go to London. <laughs> I remember clearly going round to his house and said, oh... I need to tell you, I've got an opportunity to audition for the staff band. Um, he was very supportive, maybe not that night, but he was very supportive in coming days and all through my staff band career. Uh, he was fantastic um, support to me. Um, so that was the beginnings of my time in London and straight into the staff band. Were you nervous making that move, or did it in your head just seem the right thing to do? Yeah, it just seemed the right thing. I don't know that I even had come to terms with it, what, how big of a move it was. Hmm. Um, and I was thrown in straight away to activity, uh, which helped. You know, I was straight into band rehearsals. I was straight onto the end chair. You find me. In some ways, I didn't have time to think, oh, is this going okay? Is this the right thing? I just had time to think, you've got to do okay here. <laughs> uh, people are relying on you and I guess the other thing and I've mentioned this in previous interviews was the big st step that I made but also that the staff band made uh, bringing a player from 400 miles away to sit on a principal chair must have been couched with lots of risks mm. you know, was it going to last would he be back home in three weeks time could he really play what we want him to play how we want him to play um, so I think it was a, a, a big risk for all of us, for me as a player, and for the staff band. But um, I guess it turned out not so bad. Absolutely. And 42 years of not too bad as <laughs> principal euphonium. It's been a phenomenal service. Absolutely. Yeah, I still, I still can quite take that in, in terms of the, I guess, the longevity of sitting in the same chair every Wednesday, weekend after weekend... Uh, solo after solo, 
travelling after travelling and but I look back on it with with great respect uh, to the band and those who were in it and uh, to the opportunities given through the name of the Salvation Army. So when you moved down to join the ISB, did that come with a job or did you have to find your own way in a new big city? No, it, it, it came with a job and uh, lodgings. I was lodging with a lady uh, who was a soldier up on Norwood and uh, for a while uh, before I came to Bexley Heath a few months later. Uh, my first job was at SPNS in Judge Street and I worked in the music shop because back at that point uh, we were still, still selling instruments. So we had an instrument shop and I was put in there with no experience or no knowledge of anything but uh, that was your job. I had one or two different jobs within SPNS but that was my very first one. Fantastic. And uh, I believe you had a few different roles as well for the Army over the years. Can you yes, tell us I did. about those? Yeah, and I worked for the Army, came out, worked for the Army again, you know, and at different times. Um, SPNS, um, IHQ, Public Relations, and then uh, THQ, uh, Music Department, and in between a break for a university degree, uh, three years out and then into a teaching role. Um, but even after that, eventually I was back at the, uh, I was back at the Salvation Army. So there's a sort of short history of employment. And did you enjoy that challenge of teaching musicians? Yes, I did. It was partly my ambition with doing the music degree. I wanted, one, more musical knowledge uh, in a rounded sense, uh, not just in a performance sense. So I deliberately went to do the Bachelor of Music at King's College in London, uh, where we studied performance, obviously, but we studied musical history and all sorts of other aspects uh, of music, uh, which helped me later on in the, in the teaching role, in, especially in secondary music teaching. Fantastic. And I believe uh, even you, you've retired from school teaching like that. You're still doing some peripatetic teaching and teaching here at the core in Bexley. Uh, yes, I am. I have, you know, some uh, students come round to the house for lessons. I had a pupil yesterday. She's doing a grade 8 euphonium. Uh, later on today, I'll have a, what we call a corner club with uh, four of our young corner players. Fantastic. Sounds uh, very exciting. In, in the YP band. <laughs> Um, spend a bit of time with them individually and trying to encourage them and just improve their musical skills even at that uh, young age because that's, that's the age to do it. Absolutely. Now let's talk a little bit more about your time in the ISB. Uh, we, can't, we can't blow over that too quickly. <laughs> so in those 42 years in the band, what sort of changes did you see happen both musically and structurally? Uh, the, the band had joined... I guess was a very hierarchical band in terms of Salvation Army. Uh, kind of, you spoke when you were spoken to. You know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't quite the the social structure of the modern day band, where you could just go in and speak to anyone <laughs> and say what you want, more or less. Pretty much. Um, <laughs> yes, and regret it afterwards. But um, but back then, you know, there was the. There was the commissioners, there was the colonels, there was the majors, there was the captains, there was the bandsmen, there was the headquarters staff, there was the non-headquarters staff. So there was all sorts of hierarchical things 
within the, within the staff band. Um, I, I guess the difference back then, probably two-thirds or maybe slightly more, worked for the Salvation Army. So we were having Wednesday rehearsals, as they still do, and Monday, Tuesday, Friday, lunchtime rehearsals. The staff band has had some uh, excellent players in its, in its history, uh, going way back to before my time, um, but also throughout my time too, who were great influence uh, on the music of the band, and even to the point where I guess a lot of music for the staff band, rightly or wrongly, was written for the players that were sitting in the staff band. Which didn't always help other bands who uh, play the music, but um, it certainly gave us access to uh, a lot of uh, new new music. And how did you? Uh, this is probably you could write a dissertation on quite easily, but musically, how did the music that was coming on your stands week to week, the new music that's been written, how did you see that change? Mm. It, it changed dramatically. Um, when I joined the band, I mean there was some demanding music. Don't get me wrong, and. We sometimes mix up some pieces and say, oh, they're not so difficult. That All music has difficulties within it, uh, as you know. Uh, no matter what you're playing, you don't need a new piece to be a hard piece, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Mm. Um, but when I joined the band, uh, for example, I went straight into Kaleidoscope, which was a big challenge mm. uh, to bands in the, in the 70s. You know, lots of running around, you know, and technical challenges uh, for, the, for the whole band, for euphonium, cornet, soprano, you know, had big, big jobs to do in, in that piece. Mm. Um, and The Lord is King is another notable piece I remember from my first programme with the band. So there was some big stuff going on. Did you have a favourite decade, musically? <laughs> No, that's a, that's a harder question. Uh, there were periods when the staff band had more music coming to it to play. Uh, and there were periods where we didn't have so much music. And we relied on, I guess, what we had. And there was also a period where we did rely, I think, on the American influence of composers. Uh, Bill Hines, Steve Buller, James Kerner, etc., uh, where we relied on that American batch uh, of music for quite a few years was the main th thrust in some ways of, of the new music mm. uh, before the newer composers uh, came on the scene. Uh, following, you know, the, um, the Eric Ball, the Les Condon, etc., etc., Stephen Allen. Um, uh, the kind of American composers kind of filled that musical gap in between before we saw our new you know, shamans, cordners, etc., etc. Um, so, yeah, a big range of music. Um, so, in some ways, some pieces were more challenging in the earlier years. Um, some music became, by design, more formulaic, I would say. Uh, that is not detrimental to the composers. That is purely based on the, the material kind of changed the, the way they were writing. Mm. Uh, the, for example, they were writing to more modern quotes, uh, songs, uh, which probably didn't demand the same technical challenges 
as a as a Ratcliffe Highway or a Lorders King or an Airvery by Ken Danny. You know, so there's all sorts of uh, challenges. And the staff band had a big role and still has a big role, I believe, in, in promoting music for everyone. Mm. You know, people need to hear music that challenges you as a listener and challenges the players, you know, with the, uh, with the big, big numbers, as it were. But they've also got a role to play new music and music that's appropriate to every section. You know, for me at Pitch the Heath, you know, for the band at Peterborough, for the band and Galvin or whatever. We, we all need music to suit what we're doing. Uh, so the staff band has a big role there and within, within music in the Salvation Army. Now let's talk a little bit about your role as a soloist with the band. So you'll be joining us in a later episode to talk about a euphonium solo that was specifically written for you and doing a bit of an analysis on that. I won't give any spoilers to our listeners. <laughs> but could you give a few examples of some of the solos perhaps that we may know or even those that we may not have known so well that have been written for you? Yeah, this is when I do wish I had brought a list. Um, <laughs> well, as I said, I've been very privileged to have solos written by Norman Bearcroft, Ray Stedman. I'm going to miss some out here, so I apologise straight away. Uh, I'm just picking some out. Um, Ken Downey, Peter Graham, David Catherwood, Ivor Bazanko, Steve Buller is worth a mention. <laughs> I was prompted there, Steve, if you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Richard Phillips and, and many others have uh, contributed to what I think is a great euphonium repertoire, but also an excellent euphonium legacy mm. uh, for, for players to, to look at now. Um, Norman Bearcroft, The Better World, Locomotion, The Great Adventure, Jesus, I Come to Thee, Ken Downey, Images of Praise, My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose, David Catherwood, Everybody Should Know, Annie Laurie, Spirit of Life, Richard Phillips and Christ Alone, They Will Be God, two iconic solos. Trevor Davis' Shepherd Song was written for the An Albert Hall Council's Festival, which was an interesting one. I was playing Shepherd Song and Trevor said to me a few days before, he said, oh, I need you to do something else at the Royal Albert Hall. I thought, oh, surely not another solo because I'm playing Shepherd's Song. He said, no, if, when you finish Shepherd's Song, I'd like you to come forward and do the prayer. And I said to him, I said, yeah, that's fine. It was fine until I was about eight bars from the end of Shepherd's Song and thought, I've got to speak to a, <laughs> a larger audience in the Albert Hall in a few minutes and I've still got my long high C to come at the end of Shepherd's Song. So that was probably a more nervy moment than, <laughs> than a lot of others to think I had to put my phone in there and then go and address a prayer to the, <laughs> the Royal Albert Hall assembled audience. Uh, so yeah, lots of memories there with, uh, with solos. Uh, you know, I mentioned Steve Buller's Scottish variants for the ISB 120. Um, and when I asked Steve Buller, he did say to me, because I asked him, I wanted a Scottish flavour. Mm. He said, well, why are you asking me? Why don't you ask Peter Graham, who's Scottish? I said, well... I might do it if you say no, but um, <laughs> I'd love you to do it. It's why well, I need the tunes. So uh, I recorded three melodies on a, a tape or whatever and sent them to Steve Buller, gave him a little idea of what I wanted for the introduction, for the play, the ending kind of thing. Next thing we knew, we'd be scoring parts for uh, 
Scottish variants for the Royal Albert Hall. You know, things like that are just fantastic memories. Um, working with composers who are willing to give their time and, and effort to to give you a solo to play. Especially that you're prescribing. You know, I wasn't saying to him, yeah, I want you to write what you feel, what you want. I was saying, no, I want this, that and the other. And he was, yeah, that's fine. Do you like being involved in the sort of forefront of these ideas or do you like to sit back and just let the composers work their magic? Uh, a bit of both. I mean, I've been involved both ways. So, Lebula is a good example of prescribing to a soloist. Um, I did ask Richard Phillips for In Christ Alone for a similar follow-up to They Will Be God that did the same kind of uh, blockbuster job, if you like. As, as that as that solo did, and he did a great job on them. Um, some play, uh, some composers rather have presented me with new solos which we've which we've played. Um, uh, Ray Stepman Allen wrote the lyric variations that was especially for a recording, uh, as were a lot of other solos. But um, it is. It's quite nice to be involved sometimes when a, solo, when a composer says, you know, what, what do you want? And most, to be fair, most composers do say to you, uh, what do you want in this solo? You know, because they want it to be satisfying for you to play mm. as well as them, for them to write. Um, so I've been very fortunate from that point of view. Uh, they came down the images of praise. He more or less wrote what he wanted. I just asked for one tune in it. And I asked for that melody... Um, that comes into Images of Praise, which I'm desperately trying to remember. I feel like singing all the time, which was an old vocal solo that was first published. Um, and I wanted that in Images of Praise. And, uh, of course, he put it in there. Uh, also, as a soloist, it's worth checking that your music is, one, in the right order, page-wise, and also you've actually got the right music. Uh, I was at my home court once in Hamilton and I was playing solos over the weekend. Sunday morning I was playing Alistair Taylor's I Need Thee. A beautiful extended solo, uh, I think, of, of that tune. Uh, it is published in an album with piano accompaniment and it's, it's worth playing for soloists. And it's a lovely arrangement. Anyway, uh, I got up, Alistair played the introduction, I played the first few notes thought, no, this isn't going very well. And I had introduced the solo before I played it. So I stopped and I said to the congregation, I said, there's something else I need to tell you. <laughs> and they're all going, oh, I thought you'd started the solo. I said, um, when you play a solo, always check you've got the right page. <laughs> and the solo album had a bass clef section and a treble clef section. I just turned the page over. I need the so I started playing and I was totally wrong. <laughs> so it's always, uh, it's always worth a check as a soloist. Check your copy, check your pages, uh, even check the, the right clef you're playing in. <laughs> Fantastic. Wise advice. <laughs> <laughs> so your finesse on the euphonium hasn't just been recognised within the Salvation Army, but also worldwide in the wider musical setting. And in 1991, you were awarded the prestigious award of euphonium player of the year. How did you feel receiving that? Yeah, it was quite, um, it was quite exciting when I realised the names, and the names I mentioned earlier were, were all on that list. The award was presented by the British bandsman. 
And when actually it was presented to me at the Fairfield Hall at the Staff Band Centenary concert. So there was a nice tie-in there with the Staff Band and, and whatever. But it was, a, it was a very special thing to receive. And it was presented by the then editor of the British Bands, Peter Wilson. Uh, so that was, a, that was a special thing. And I guess uh, an early link between Army and non-Army. There wasn't many at that point. But I guess that was one of the first... Yeah, I, might be, you know, I might be stand corrected there. But it was certainly an early link between the two uh, worlds, as it were. Fantastic. Great. Congratulations. I know it's a little bit late to the party, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, something that overarches your whole life, whether it's a performer, a composer, or as a leader, uh, is your faith. So I just want to ask you, in all the years that you've been part of the Salvation Army, and specifically making music in the Salvation Army, how has your faith shaped who you are? Well, I think it shapes who we all are. I mean, nobody can be up all of the time. Maybe some people, well, maybe some people may say they are. But... Um, I don't believe everybody can be up all of the time. And that's not to say we don't rely on our faith when we're up. <laughs> but we certainly rely on it a lot when we're not. Um, and I think that's part of the, the social aspect of being together uh, as a group within Salvation Army or as a congregation in Salvation Army uh, is, plays a crucial role in, in that. You know, there are times where we don't feel like it. And that's a normal, to me, human response. But but I'm sure that that can turn on a word from the from the front here. It can turn on a, a song from songsters. It can turn on a, a piece from the band. And I think that that's part of a role uh, musically is to um, encourage that aspect of, of of being together and and aspect of faith, both as an individual and as a congregation. As part of a role uh, when we're, we're playing or singing or, or worshipping. Um, also, the encouragement aspect should never be underestimated. You know, we're all guilty of ignoring something or ignoring someone or not doing something when we should have done. But we also see the other side of that when we flip that and go down the encouragement route because we've been part of that. And you know, if we give that out, what you give out, you get back. <laughs> is a good statement to make in terms of a, a faith. Mm. You know, what you give out, you get back. Uh, you know, as a leader, what you give out to your group, you get back. As a performer, what you give out, you get back. You know, as a person who just comes as part of the uh, fabric of your church, what you give out, you get back. Thank you for that, and I hope those words resonate for those listening. So before we move on to our quirky, quick-fire section, ah. the lighter side of the interview... Always um, good. I thought we could play a game. Yeah, I love games. Yeah. No, Great. Thank you. Well, hopefully you'll like this one. Um, I'll as tell well you. As... <laughs> you'll, get, you'll get the feeling if I do or not. Yeah. <laughs> it's when you, the door, we hear the door slamming that we know... <laughs> So as well as building a reputation as a phenomenal euphonium player, you've also built a reputation for being somewhat forgetful. Is that fair to say? Ooh, can't remember. Um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, that's, that's fair to say. Fantastic. Not sure where that reputation comes from. <laughs> well, 
Yes, I do. I know where it comes from. We, we might explore that then in this game. There's nothing worse than that feeling and going to the staff bandmaster half an hour before the festival and saying, I need to play a different solo tonight. And you'll go, no, no, you'll be fine on that one. I said, no, you don't understand. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a new solo and I've got the three pages up on the stand. Mm. I said, I, I didn't bring it. He said, ah. <laughs> I said, so I need to play Home in the Range instead or Song of Brown. And you go, okay, let's get it from the local co band and... We'll play that. Fantastic. Well, the game is exactly along those lines. I'm going to list a few things that you may need for a band concert or an away weekend, and you've got to say if you've forgotten them at some point, and if you can remember, when. <laughs> I'm ready. So, first of all, your cap. Yes, forgotten. Yep, great. Uh, phone charger? Uh, yes, probably, but didn't panic. No, okay. Uh, your pyjamas? Probably, yes. <laughs> uh, your uniform? Yes, definitely. Great. Um, uh, every item off. Red, blue, white, tie, blue, you name it. Shoes, socks, yeah. Bingo. Excellent. Uh, your music? Yes, definitely. Yep. Your instrument? Yes. Um, not many times, fortunately. Uh, one famous one at the Royal Albert Hall, which is not a great place to forget your instrument. Uh, it was a council's festival. Uh, Melbourne staff band were there. And we went to play the first piece in rehearsal, and the conductor, whoever it was, was out front. And I went to, I actually went to pick up my euphonium. And of course, it wasn't there. And I thought, <laughs> oh, I've left it home. So I to ring my wife, Hazel, and say, look, I need you to bring my euphonium. She said, you're at the Albert Hall. I said, yeah, I know, but my euphonium <laughs> isn't. So I had to borrow one from the Melbourne staff band, particularly. As there was an announcement, can the staff band come out? We need to do a photograph. Mm. So one photograph with one person. So I had to borrow one from the Melbourne staff band. So there's a picture of me with a Melbourne staff band euphonium somewhere. Uh, so yes, to that one. Fantastic. Mouthpiece? I don't know. Maybe not. Oh, I can't remember ever borrowing a mouthpiece. So I'm going to say no, I don't think so on that one. And uh, how about a passport for a tour? No, I haven't got no, I've been okay on that. Fantastic. And finally, yourself. <laughs> no, a couple of tours I couldn't quite make for different <laughs> reasons, but not because I forgot to go. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are, it's, it's not a great average. No, no, but uh, there we go, that is the game. <laughs> Nothing too terrifying. Great, so that takes us into our quirky, quickfire questions quite nicely. So some of these are quite standard, some a little bit. Wackier. Good. So, first of all, favourite Salvation Army composer? Uh, I'm going to say Dean Goffin. Favourite Salvation Army piece? Uh, Song of Courage by Eric Ball. Uh, have you got favourite euphoniums over there? Uh, I think I'd have to put The Better World on that label. What mouthpiece do you use? I used to get asked this a lot, and... I thought, especially younger players, I thought, I don't want all these younger players rushing out and buying this mouthpiece and then coming back and saying, look, I can't get anywhere. Because <laughs> I always use the biggest mouthpiece I can. For years and years, I used a Bach uh, 1.5G, which is kind of bass trombone area. Um, and I still use it now, but tend to do with me today in my case is a 2G. Uh, I have strayed on a 3.5 for occasion. But I've always been in the, in the Bach area, normally two-ish. 
Excellent. So what's your go-to warm-up exercise? I always start on the same note. I always play a G when I'm instrument, is that the case? On the gig bag. I don't know why. I just do it. It's just a nice note for me to play. Nice. And always seems to work. If that didn't work, I don't know what would happen. <laughs> Could have been all over years ago. Um, <laughs> uh, what is the most lost you've ever got yourself? Oh, what, in a solo? Or just generally, just directionally? Geographically, maybe, yeah. What, you can take that question, Harry. Uh, too many times, uh, Matthew, I've been, I've been totally lost. Uh, I, got lost in, I got lost in France once. <laughs> nice. And couldn't find the airport. Uh, that was one. Um, in this country, yeah, I've got lost. I mean, sat now, so a great thing, but even they have led me astray down a road that I thought, surely the sat nav doesn't believe in this. But um, I believed in it, so it's faith for you. Um, so, yeah, quite a few times I've been lost. And I'm always thinking about, oh, I better leave. My wife always saying to me, why are you leaving now? I said, well, you never know, traffic, I could get something out. And I, I, I think I've become more obsessed by leaving early and getting to places than even I used to be. And you might have to turn around and go and pick something yeah, up Yeah, because well, I just you? know that one wrong turn could be half an hour off, off your journey. So um, always try and compensate for a, a miscalculation. <laughs> if you could teleport to any spot in the world for 10 minutes right now, where would you choose? Uh, well, somewhere hot. You know, maybe, I don't know. California, maybe Florida, maybe no. somewhere with sunshine. Mm, excellent. And a feel-good factor. <laughs> Great. Petrol, diesel, or electric? Um, well, currently, uh, petrol. Weird way to charge your phone. Uh, Favourite passage of scripture? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say. Psalm 121, where it says, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Uh, I'm going to quote that one as one of my, one of my favourites. Fantastic. Which character from the Bible would you say you most resonate with? Well, I don't know. Who was the most forgetful? Um, that's an interesting <laughs> one. I don't know that answer. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, what is the greatest angle you've ever achieved leaning backwards on a big no for a finale of the solo? <laughs> I don't know, I can only go by what people say. And the, the first thing to say on that is there was never any intention on that. I never, that was never a, a part of my practice routine. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd probably done a lot of damage. And I never really thought about it. And then people started to talk about this trademark ending. Um, and I, I guess it's something that just happened and became part of, 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 of what it was. Um, and I didn't realise how, just how much movement was involved in, on some occasions. Otherwise, I probably would never have done it. Do you have to warm up for that? In your yeah, walks? no, so well, probably, probably now, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably be more um, careful now about, about it. But, um, yeah, I, I was never, most of the time, well, I was never aware of it, even. Uh, what's your favourite style of shoe? Probably a nice brogue. Nice. If you could have one pizza topping eradicated from history, what would it be? Probably pineapple. Mm, I'm on board. Not with really that. much place for that pineapple. Wherever that came from, however nice it looks, however much people seem to like it in Hawaii, um, <laughs> it probably doesn't have a place on mine. <laughs> and can you name a top tier herb? 
Rosemary. Excellent. You heard it here first. Thank you, Derek. We look forward to hearing from you again in the near future. It's now time to welcome Major Martin Cordner to the podcast. If you wish to follow a score to see some of the musical examples we speak about, some accompanying snippets from the score are available to view for free on the Music Editorial Facebook page and the Fully Scored Facebook page too. Martin, thank you very much for joining us once again. It's a real pleasure to hear from you again, and I'm sure listeners may remember hearing your voice all the way back in our first episode five, I believe, we heard from you first of all. Well, in today's episode, we're going to be doing something slightly different and discussing a brand new piece of music. So new, in fact, it hasn't been published yet. The piece is called Quinonia and has been recently recorded by the international staff band on their latest recording, Powerhouse. Quinonia is an epic work for brass band with an engaging story that takes us through seven contrasting movements. And who better to have than the composer himself to tell us all about the piece? So first of all, Martin, could you tell us how you came to write this piece, please? Sure thing. Well, uh, thanks for having me on this programme again, Matthew. It's great to be back. Uh, Koinonia came about as a a result of a request by Dr Stephen Cobb, the conductor of the ISB, uh, for me to write something for the band. This would have been around about the summer of 2019. We had a brief chat, I think it was at the Symphony Sounds uh, concert uh, that year, about... Um, a possible piece and different thematic ideas and really Steve's idea was and I hope I'm representing him correctly here that in the face of so much kind of negativity and people feeling a little bit down about things at that time bear in mind this is summer 2019 little did we know what was around the corner in 2020 but anyway that's another story he felt could we have a piece of music that really celebrated our faith and celebrated who who we were as a Salvation Army um, and we talked about the idea of fellowship. So to my mind, the word koinonia instantly appeared. And I, I think I blurted out koinonia, uh, to which Steve must have sort of said, bless you, thought I sneezed or something. But uh, he, he went along with the idea and I said, leave it with me. I'll come up with some ideas. I went off away on holiday with the family to France during August. And um, I set about pen, penning really a, a, a theme I suppose is where I started which became eventually the opening bars of this piece of music um, and this theme I just felt really needed to be really uh, in your face really aspirational very positive um, is something that we needed to celebrate and so it's a major key theme it has intervals of sixths and sevenths um, and the idea with those steps in, in my understanding was that uh, koinonia is something that we can aspire to, you know, reach higher and higher for, if you like. So the, the melody goes up step by step with those intervals. Um, so that was really how it all started with, the, with, a, with a mini theme. And how did the piece develop onwards from there? Well, after capturing that opening theme, I began to wonder really where the piece was going to take me. I didn't have any idea at that time, um, but the idea came to me to describe the growth of the church, that that would be a really interesting um, project, if you like. So from its humble beginnings in first century Palestine to, you know, the world worldwide movement we know today, two billion strong. So 
I did a little bit of research into church history. Uh, we learned that in training college, but that was 20 years ago for me. So I did a little bit of reading again and researching. Um, and I didn't really intend for the piece to become seven movements, but it's just evolved uh, that way. Um, in my research, I wrote down a quote from biblical translator and a monastic leader called Jerome, who was around uh, in the sort of fourth century. And in the year 378 AD, he is reportedly uh, he is reported to have said, from India to Britain, all nations resound with the death and resurrection of Christ. And I think this sentiment, his surprise, his amazement at how the gospel has got around the world that he knew is at the heart of this piece. There's no other word to describe the explosive gr growth of Christianity around the world than just simply miraculous. Um, his understanding of what all nations mean is different to what our understanding of what all nations is today but nevertheless the growth of Christianity has been astonishing and he wouldn't have known of course that over subsequent centuries the gospel would eventually be taken by missionaries and explorers to the farthest ends of the earth so that's really what the piece is about and my prayer my hope for the piece is that we will be reminded that the spread of Christianity continues today as well you know I, I'm sure you are aware I, I didn't, I wasn't really aware, but I learned in recent years that the Salvation Army continues to grow to this day. In fact, it's never stopped growing. And in places like, you know, Latin America, Africa and Asia, Christianity continues to grow very rapidly. In, in Africa, for instance, in 1900, there were 8.7 million adherents of Christianity. Now there are 390 million adherents of Christianity. That's just amazing growth. So that's something I hope that this piece captures as well, not just the historical record of the growth of the church, but that we can celebrate the fact that it is still growing. We're part of something amazing. So the miraculous spread of the gospel is its inspiration and it follows the believers across the centuries as at first they meet in temple courts and welcome newcomers, but then they journey to new lands, they face opposition, they ultimately conclude their journey reunited with Jesus in heaven. Great, and thank you for that context and that overall synopsis of the piece. We're now going to look a little bit more in detail at the individual movements. So the first movement is simply called Prelude. Can you set the scene for what we hear musically? Yeah, so this is that opening, uh, opening bright positive theme that I mentioned earlier, um, and it becomes a musical thread uh, and ties the movements together. Chronologically, if you like, in the story of the growth of the church, we're in the days and the weeks following the ascension of Jesus. So we're 40 days after the resurrection. We're right there with the brand new church, if you like. Um, towards the end of this segment, there is um, what I can only call an Eastern sounding motif, Arabic in its sound, I think. And that was something that came to me, a little motif really, which I thought I would layer into the piece. Kind of a reminder that that's actually where our faith comes from. It isn't a British faith, it isn't an African faith, but it's a Middle Eastern faith 
born out of the Jewish faith. And um, so that little motif just reminds us of where Christianity began. Fantastic. And after the grandeur and majesty of that prelude, the music changes style to include some more little joyful declaratory passages in the cornets, horns and trombones. And this takes us into movement two, titled The Early Church. Yeah, that's right. So here I, I'm, we're still in the first century and um, we're in a busy marketplace in Jerusalem. The city is under watchful Roman rule. Um, and I was imagining that within the crowds, within the busyness, the hustle and bustle, the believers would gather. They probably would have gathered in secret. Um, we don't get all the detail of the early church from the Bible, but it tells us a little bit about what the believers did at this time in history. In Acts 2 verses 42 to 44, we read all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. So there's a song we hear um, and it's a song by Keith and Christine Getty. The words say, oh, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in faith and unity, where the bonds of peace, of acceptance and love are the fruits of his presence here among us. So once again, the music then changes direction as the tempo picks up, taking us into movement three, newcomers. Can you explain what we're hearing through this section, please? Yeah, so here um, the music describes the Holy Spirit moving freely and the fellowship growing. Um, listeners can hear uh, an original melody um, that comes out. It, it, it's on the flugelhorn at first, um, but it's a descending whole tone uh, motive built on the whole tone scale and to me that was a kind of uh, an indication or a portrayal of the, the spirit moving freely. Anyhow through the missionary journeys of the apostles um, the gospel spreads quickly, as we know, we read about that in the New Testament. Um, it spreads around the Mediterranean and many people get saved. But as the early church establishes outposts around the Roman Empire, there are hotbeds of persecution, of course, the staging grounds of the church's major theological battles. And they didn't just face opposition from people of other faiths and cultures in faraway lands, they also faced opposition from their own people, from the Jewish authorities, but also from the Roman authorities in Jerusalem as well. And 
through all the excitement and ferocity that takes us to an almost Stravinsky-like sound world with a pounding bass drum, snarling muted trombones and maniacal cornet figures. The music gives way to a stunning melodic movement, Bonds of Peace. Yeah, and this title, Bonds of Peace, is taken from the Getty song uh, that we spoke about in Movement 2. Um, I think my thinking here was that, you know, after times of intense, intense hostility, um, the believers would have withdrawn to share in prayer and praise and worship. Um, the words of Jesus, I think, are resounding in the midst of the fellowship. Uh, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So you'll hear fragments of the chorus bind us together. And I felt that they really were an expression of prayer from the believers. You know, we're facing tough times. Lord, be with us and draw us together, bind us together. Stunning music indeed. Then, before we know it, we're into movement five. All nations resound. Kicked off by this virtuosic tuba and euphonium line, reminiscent of some of the larger intervallic jumps we saw in the prelude. What is this movement portraying? Well, all nations resound, um, first of all, comes from that Jerome quote cited earlier. So um, he was saying all nations resound with the gospel of Christ. So in a matter of a few centuries, the amazing thing is the Christian gospel has spread through explorers and missionaries beyond Europe to the world. Um, and to my thinking, the Spirit of God had been establishing this worldwide fellowship of believers. So we get a snapshot of the song for I'm building a people of power. <laughs> Later, the believers praise God by singing, our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power and love. Our God is an awesome God. So movement six, Elegy, could perhaps be seen as quite unusual for brass band at first, featuring an extended baritone solo accompanied by other lower brass members of the band. It's a haunting melody. Where did the inspiration for this movement come from? Yeah, thank you. Well, actually, after watching a video presentation of the low brass section in Bruckner's eighth, um, 
it just in, inspired me, I think, or gave me an idea for an elegy for similar sounding instruments, you know, the lower end of the band. My mind's always drawn to Robert Reddit's Corpus Christi when you think of a low brass um, section of music, you know, for the euphoniums and tubers as he wrote there. So I guess I wasn't trying to replicate what Robert had done, but I just felt if you wanted sorrowful music, then when it's lower in pitch and the instruments are playing in their high ratio, you get an, an amazing intensity and sonority. So I think that's probably what I was thinking, but it was definitely the Bruckner that I had heard that gave me the idea. Um, so the contrast this movement for quintet uh, would bring would make it hopefully for the listeners a moment to pause and give thanks uh, as well. Um, it is a bit of a workout for the first baritone soloist, and I now have a new best friend in Ian Parkhouse, I'm sure, uh, who has to play this on the recording. Um, he's playing in the higher register, and from all five players, there needs to be a great deal of intensity that can only come, actually, you know, in a situation when we've perhaps lost someone we love. When they play this, it probably costs them something physically, but perhaps the real authenticity will come if it costs them emotionally and spiritually as well. It's a difficult subject actually, isn't it? Because the Christian gospel is almost never received easily. We know that today. It's never not challenged. Um, and many people have lost their lives for the sake of koinonia, you know, the fellowship that we experience and the gospel on which it stands. Um, I was drawn to John chapter 15, verse 13, the words of Jesus, which I'm sure would remain in the hearts of the believers at that time. He says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. The believers pause for moments and reflection of prayer, and they're inspired by the legacies of the brave brothers and sisters who, with them, faithfully carried the gospel of Christ to the farthest ends of the earth, and for it paid the ultimate price. final movement of the work is called The Walk to Eternity, which takes the piece to a grand and climactic ending. Can you explain the narrative behind the music here, please? Yeah, well, I guess this was my way of finishing off the story of the believers. You know, th their story doesn't end with their the passing of their mortal life in whatever country they found themselves with, whatever group of people they found themselves with their story continues because they then have a walk to eternity and they're then going to experience um, koinonia in eternity, koinonia forever, koinonia with each other in heaven and with God. So um, as people listen to this, I know that people have already been, re been reminded of Respighi's Appian Way from his Pines of Rome suite. And I have to say that wasn't really a conscious musical decision on my part. I didn't listen to that and think I will do the same thing, but there are thematic parallels. Um, both of the pieces paint a musical image of 
if you like, loyal comrades returning home from active service. So I guess there is that synergy there. Um, in Koinonia, in my work, um, what was in my mind was that we are recalling the past quests of the fellowship and having living their lives as true disciples of Jesus Christ, the believers are now on the road to heaven. Um, their earthly mission is complete and this sort of triumphant congregation is advancing amidst the brilliance of a newly rising sun, anticipating the reality of Koinonia in eternity. Um, and there's this really lovely song, which I had never heard until writing this piece, but and I was delighted to have found it in our own songbook. Um, a relatively new song, 2007, I think it came out. Uh, there is a hope, it is called, and these are the words. There is a hope that stands the test of time, that lifts my eyes beyond the beckoning grave to see the matchless beauty of a day divine when I behold his face. When sufferings cease and sorrows die and every longing satisfied, then joy unspeakable will flood my soul for I am truly home. I thought that was a really beautiful song and such an apt set of words to encapture what ult ultimately where we will go ultimately how we will feel as believers we end up in eternity too so as a piece comes to a, a, a kind of a glorious conclusion um, you'll hear angel voices um, and I hope you'll be able to imagine the believers looking into the eyes of Christ who stands waiting for them and the army of believers rises in triumph to the gates of heaven.
Okay, thank you ever so much, Martin, for your music, but also your words and explaining that story behind the music there um, for us. And I hope that listeners will either be able to discover the piece anew or those that already do know it to further their understanding. Really appreciate you giving up your time for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much, Matthew. It's much appreciated. Uh, it, the piece of music itself took a lot out of me, not only just in time, but in, in my spirit and what I could give. And simply, it's just an offering. I hope that God can, in some way, uh, bless people as they listen. I'm sure the piece of music might have other effects on people as well. It just might not be people's thing, then that would be fair enough. But I just hope there's something in there that um, inspires or encourages somebody today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. If you wish to listen to the piece as a whole, you can purchase the CD from World of Brass or stream it on Wob Play. Now it's time for Arid Island Album. Today's guest is Catherine Wallace. Well, Catherine, thank you ever so much for joining us for this episode's instalment of Arid Island Album. How are you keeping? I'm very well, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be with you, Matthew. Great. Now, let's just get to know you a little bit uh, for those that don't already know you before we hear your album choice. So you're the bandmaster at Coventry City. How long have you been bandmaster for? So um, I started in January 2018. And we had two years and then uh, two years in lockdown. So uh, half of my time as a bandmaster has been on Zoom and sorting out video recordings and Facebook and all of that kind of thing. So it's been an interesting uh, experience so far, but uh, really enjoy it. We've got a band of 24 people, so doing reasonably well in terms of numbers after lockdown and things like that. And as well as being a bandmaster, uh, you're a tenor horn player and play tenor horn in the Household Troops Band. Yes, um, really fortunate to be a member of the Household Troops Band. Um, really enjoy kind of the coming together, the challenge of uh, playing a concert with very little rehearsal and um, that kind of difference to being in, in the core band and uh, getting out into the open air and really... Uh, providing a spectacle that attracts people to, to come and listen and see what, what we're about. Uh, so yeah, I've enjoyed that. Uh, enjoyed making the CD recordings as well. And uh, looking forward to hopefully going to Amsterdam in uh, September, we hope, COVID permitting. <laughs> Absolutely. How long have you been part of the band for now? Uh, I joined for the uh, 2019 recording was my first uh, engagement with the band. So I think I've done three um, festivals, weekends away with them, uh, which isn't bad considering you think we've had COVID for the, re for the rest of the time. So, uh, um, yeah, really enjoying that. Fantastic. That's great stuff. And uh, would you describe yourself as a bit of a band nerd? Um, I think it's fair to say that, yes, probably. Um, if you need to know a tune book number or something like that, I'm probably one of you go to people um, and I did used to be able, well I think I probably still can, used to know every single member of the 
the ISB and also what track each piece was on their uh, CD recording. So a bit of a nerd, I think. Nice. That is fantastic. We'll have to have you on that band mastermind one day. Where do you reckon you'd end up on the leaderboard? I don't know. It depends. My mind seems to go blank quite often these days. So I, I don't know whether under the pressure I'd be kind of uh, struggling, but I, I reckon probably um, similar performance to Newcastle in the second half of this season. You don't know much about football. Right over my head. <laughs> Great stuff. And outside of Salvation Army banding, what's life like for you? Can you tell us a bit about your profession? Yeah, so I'm a chartered accountant and uh, I've worked in uh, accountancy practice. Then I worked for the Salvation Army for um, around about eight years, I think it was, uh, working in a divisional headquarters and then um, in the service centre. And then in 2017, I moved to the University of Warwick and I started there as a finance manager and now I'm the financial controller there. So have accounts payable, accounts receivable, and some processing teams reporting into me. Fantastic. Thank you for that little snapshot into your daily life there. So I think that brings us on to the all-important question. If you were stuck on a deserted and arid island in the middle of nowhere, and you could take with you one album, what would that album be and why? So I found this very difficult, and ever since I've been asked to be on here I've been debating and debating and debating but I finally decided and it was only today that I made the final decision to pick uh, Enfield Citadel Band's uh, CD recording Journey into Freedom and uh, the main reason I've picked this CD is because it features the, the tenor horn player Shiona White on it and um, when I was a, a kid doing my grades and um, working on uh, kind of developing my playing. Uh, Shona White was really kind of setting out in terms of her uh, career and was really kind of um, a heroine of mine. Um, really tried to kind of listen to her sound and, and emulate that. Uh, didn't do so well in terms of as she's done, but uh, you know, it, she was the person that I would listen to and try and copy and, and things. So. Um, on this CD, Shiona plays uh, Episode for Horn, which was one of my grade eight pieces that I played. Um, the, the classic tenor horn solo in Salvation Army repertoire, The Old Rustic Bridge. And then a really beautiful setting uh, by James Kerno of um, The Depths of His Love. And uh, as a slow melody, that's, that's just a really beautiful arrangement. And obviously Shiona White plays that uh, exceptionally well as you would would expect that's probably the main reason for picking uh, the cd but uh, there's also the uh, tuba player steve sykes playing on it and you don't very often get kind of cds with a few tuba solos on when there's there's other band pieces as well so um really enjoy his playing of celestial morn the les condon um epic bass solo on there as well um there's also a couple of other pieces um, with uh, significant reasons why I've picked this CD as well. Uh, the first uh, march that's on the piece is Rolling Along by William Himes. And back in 1995, when I was a youngster going to my first Bristol music school, uh, we played that on manuscript. So uh, always a, 
special memory there. And then um, the last track on the CD is Eric Ball's Journey into Freedom. And uh, we've played that at Territorial Youth Band, which I've been uh, privileged to be on the staff of for a number of years. And uh, I think I really enjoyed playing Journey into Freedom. And I think it really speaks and still has a great message for people today as well. So um, that's some of the reasons I've picked it. Um, was conducted by Bandmaster James Williams, who for a number of years used to come along to Territorial Youth Band and uh, just um, observe what was going on, whisper in people's ear to help encourage them or to give them tips and advice. And uh, I used to really enjoy speaking to him at meal times and learning from him as well. So another kind of significant reason, I think, for, for picking this uh, album. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much, Catherine. A great choice there. And thank you for giving up your time to join us today. Thank you. Our final segment in this episode is the much-loved Band Mastermind. We welcome Derek Kane back to see if he can achieve what no guest has achieved so far, to take over the top of the leaderboard. Well, Derek, welcome back. We're going to put your mind to the test in Band Mastermind. Ooh, you uh, feeling right. ready for this? Well, let's go. So, just as a quick reminder for our listeners at home, Derek, you'll have a minute and 30 to answer as many band trivia questions as you can correctly. If you don't know, you can pass, and uh, we'll see where you end up on the leaderboard. So, Derek Kane, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? Go. Then your time starts now. <laughs> Which Salvation Army band takes part in the yearly Lord Mayor's Parade? Household Troops. Correct. In what year was the ISB 120 held? 2014. Incorrect, I'm afraid. Which piece of music now published in the Judge Street Collection was originally written for the 2004 European Brass Band Championships? Sid Magnus. Correct. Hubelo Hubelo by Martin Cordner was originally written for which band? New York Staff Band. Incorrect, I'm afraid. Who wrote the books The Golden Pen, Volumes 1 and 2? Wilfred Heaton. Incorrect, I'm afraid. How many pieces by Dean Goffin are published in the festival series? Uh, Ten. Close, but not quite, I'm afraid. Geographically, which two staff bands that took a part in the ISB 120 rehearsed closest to each other? As the crow flies. Uh, Germany, Amsterdam. Incorrect, I'm afraid. Aspiration, anecdotal snapshot of genius by Robert Getz is a biography of which Salvationist composer? Eric Lysden. Not quite, I'm afraid. In what year? In what year was Ray Steadman Allen's first publication? 1942. Very, very close. Which Salvationist composer was awarded the Order of the Founder on the 10th of March 2013? Our time's up. Still Holmes. Not quite, I'm afraid. But Stephen Allen? No, not quite. I'll go through the answers of the ones you didn't quite get which, which, correctly what? now. 2013. Do you want another minute to think about it? It won't count as a point, but... Bill Flynn? <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. It was Eric Silverberg. Oh, I wouldn't have gone now. Ah... Uh, so, the answers that you didn't quite get correct... Yeah, I did most of them. 
The ISP 120 was held in 2011. Oh, wow. Uh, Hubelo Hubelo uh, by Martin Corden was originally written for the Territorial Youth Band. Uh, the Golden Pen. probably there as well. Quite possibly. Uh, Golden Pens Volumes 1 and 2 were written by Steve Klepke. Oh, um, I wouldn't have got that. It was seven pieces published by Dean Goff in, in the festival series. So pretty close. And again, another very close one. You said Amsterdam Staff Band and German Staff Band being geographic, the closest two. Is it London? Yeah, ISB in Amsterdam, yeah. 222 miles as the crow flies. That was my... I should have Ish. worked that out. Uh, tricky one. Uh, Aspiration, anecdotal snapshot of genius by Robert Getz is the biography of Emil Soderstrom. And you were only a couple of years out, but Ray Stepan Allen's first publication was published in 1945. Oh. So that gives you a total of... Two. Just work it. Was it two? So I wasn't counting. So, which isn't a bad score oh. for Band Mastermind at all. We've had far worse. <laughs> That's all, folks. Another episode draws to a close. As ever, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can be instantly notified of all new episodes. And why not leave us a rating or a review? You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, all three if you wish, for the latest behind-the-scenes and bonus content. Just search Fully Scored. A few thank yous before we go. Thank you to all three of our guests today, Derek, Martin and Catherine. As always, thank you for your time and your talents. Much appreciated. Thank you also to the great Simono, as he requests to be called, also known as Simon Gash. Thank you for producing this podcast. Thank you to the underground lurkers that are the band nerds for their assistance with a band mastermind trivia. And of course... Thank you for tuning in and lending a listening ear. You can have it back now. Goodbye and God bless.